this is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. And today is part two of our visit to Jamestown, New York for the 2023 Lucille Ball Comedy Festival presented by the National Comedy Center. Today's episode features comedians Paul Morrissey, Marcus Monroe, Eitan Levine, Dean Edwards, Chris Martin, and Rachel Feinstein. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. I'm here now with Executive Director of the National Comedy Center, Journey Gunderson, to share with us a little bit about this year's Lucille Ball Comedy Festival. Journey, uh, tell me a little bit about this year's headliners. Well, our two big headliners this year were Taylor Tomlinson and Gabe Iglesias. Taylor Tomlinson is now breaking ticket sale records set by Jerry Seinfeld in some cities and venues. And of course, Gabe Iglesias is coming off of a record-setting performance at the largest baseball stadium in the U.S., L.A.'s Dodger Stadium. And so one cool thing we did with him in town this week was cut the ribbon on the addition of his wardrobe for that night, the jersey he wore on that field, into the National Comedy Center artifact displays. 45,000 tickets sold puts him in a category joining the Rolling Stones and the Beatles at that venue. So That's crazy. And the festival itself, the Lucia Ball Comedy Festival has been going on 30 plus years and have had giant names. Can you share with us some of the people historically that have been through Jamestown? Yeah, the groundbreaking in 2015, where we really started to physically build the National Comedy Center was headlined by Jerry Seinfeld, Amy Schumer, Lily Tomlin. We did a Saturday Night Live originators conversation on stage with Alan Zweibel and Dan Aykroyd and more. Lorraine Newman has been here, who's on our board. The first headliner I booked was Joan Rivers, and I feel so fortunate saying that here today. Kathleen Madigan, David Spade, Kevin Nealon, Jeff Foxworthy, Margaret Cho, Sebastian Maniscalco, John Mulaney, and of course this year Taylor Tomlinson and Gabe Iglesias. Trevor Noah we had at the same year as Lewis Black in 2016, which was neat because it was a national election year. So for those two comics, you know, that felt like a good fit. It's been quite a run. Yeah, it's an iconic festival, and of course it's a great Thing, not just for the city, but people come in from all over to be a part of that. And while here, they go to the National Comedy Center and they start to see all of these new great exhibits that have been building over the last few years. The Carl Reiner Archives exhibit, the Johnny Carson Immersive exhibit. And we're delighted that the podcast was invited to kind of come experience the festival. And so I'm going to share with them some of the great comics. We're going to start with some comedy from one of our late night comedy showcases. Here we go. I hate soup. I hate people that smell like soup. I hate people. <laughs> I don't like people with soup recipes. I don't even like the word soup, the way it starts and ends all slippery like that, you know? <laughs> and people get upset. They're like, how could you not like soup? Soup is good food. That's the slogan. I was like, nah, it's like 1% food. It's water <laughs> that touched food at one point. That's all it is. They get all frustrated. How could you not like chicken noodle soup? Don't you like chicken? It's like, yeah, I love chicken. I just never thought that dumping a bucket of hot water on top would make it taste better. <laughs> soup is literally the watered-down version of what I want to eat. <laughs> and water doesn't help food. You don't order your steak soggy, do you? That doesn't work. I mean, here's the thing. You eat soup when you're broke. That's why it's so cheap. There's nothing in it, you know? You eat soup when you run out of teeth, when you can't chew actual food anymore. <laughs> 
Still not on board? How about this? It's the only food that crackers make it taste better. That's how bad <laughs> soup is. That was the voice of our host tonight, Paul Morrissey, for the late night sets in the Tropicana Room at the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival 2023. Paul, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, what was that room like in there? It's amazing. I'm a veteran of it. I've been at this festival, I think, four times, and then I liked it so much that I actually recorded an album here in March, so we did four other shows. But your new album, Ice Cream vs. Everything, yep. was recorded in that Tropicana room. Yeah, we did four shows. I did about an hour and ten minutes each show, and you know how it is, like, kind of a crap shoot. Which one do you think was the best out of the four? <laughs> right. The last one or the first one? Oh, I guess I would think it would be the last one. First one was the best one. The, even my record company guy is like, we got it. Anything else is gravy. And I'm like, no, come on. Like, I'm still getting warmed up. And then when you listen back to it, like, the energy of that first show was just so much more than the rest of them. The rest of them were good, but they, it just, you know, you can tell. But maybe it's the element of surprise even to you as a performer mm -hmm. in terms of the rhythm because you begin on each subsequent one trying to improve it. Yeah. And you're thinking in your head. I mean, isn't that part of what happens? Well, I'm always thinking the late show is going to be better. You know, I think we did seven and nine. So you're always thinking seven o'clock, it's going to be more reserved. But that, that first one was the one. So it, yeah. it always surprises you. Comedy yeah. does. <laughs> and that album is available now? Available August 11th. Cool. So by being a veteran of the festival, you are also a guy that's been to the National Comedy Center a few times. Well, here's the thing. Just when I recorded the album, that was the first time that the special had been finished since I, I, I came here maybe like 2013, 14, 15, 16, right around there. And then... I hadn't been here in a while, so I think, when did it get built? The eight, well, 18 five, or 19? Well, five maybe? years it's been open, yeah. so uh, I just didn't know if you've been in there and really taken the yeah. full technology in yet. Well, I mean, it blew us away. Like, I, Turner Sparks, I had a New York City comic who was here last night. He opened for me for all the shows, and we went over there, and we were just going over there and meet them and to come over here, and we were just like, Oh man, this is amazing. And it's really like a comedy nerd's dream. Like everything. <laughs> I'm sure you have specific comics that you love. I'm I'm a huge Norm Macdonald fan, but those specific young comedian specials when I was growing up, HBO was the only place that you could see stuff like that. And my favorite comedian who I never got to work with, but I always followed his career was Drake Sather. Oh. And so I walked into the comedy center and Drake Sather is playing on the big board. Oh. And I'm just like, oh man, this is like made for me. Thinking about the legacy of so many comics, we've lost many talented comics. Yeah. But to have places where those Bill Hicks and all of those people that are legendary among comics yeah you're a historian and if you worked with all the great people we were actually i was with tom papa last night at the the hampton beach casino which okay. is not a casino but <laughs> right. it's a historic like duke ellington played there led zeppelin jerry played there carlin i guess sold the most shows out it's just a, a great acoustic kind of room right on the beach tom papa texted jerry like when did you work here and he said he did it with henny youngman Oh, man. <laughs> this museum connects all those eras. Yeah. From the youngest, in, and including this festival, like lots of the folks we have on tonight are younger, on-the-rise comics. You started off as an anchorman, a sports anchor. I yeah, guess. I was a TV sports anchor, but before that I was a basketball player, which is an even less likely <laughs> thing for me to do. So nothing I've ever done I look like I can do. So 
And the only place I could have played after, I played at Binghamton University, and I could have coached or played for the Washington Generals, which is a team that gets beat by the Globetrotters every game. Which <laughs> They were my favorite. Yeah. And that's an old vaudeville act. Yeah, but as a kid, I watched the Holland Globetrotters, and I kept thinking, when is this team going to give up, the, the Washington <laughs> Generals? Because I didn't know that it yeah. was an entertainment choreographed thing. They're still basketball players. I mean, yeah. all no. of them are sinking baskets. Two of my friends, uh, Nate O'Neill, who played at Colgate, he told me this is kind of like right before internet's hitting, late 90s. So he's getting plane tickets delivered, and their meal tickets are like McDonald's gift cards or something. And so he said... Combine my three favorite things, traveling the world, shooting three-pointers, and playing no defense. (laughs) (laughs) My buddy's dad, Mr. Greenberg, actually played in the 60s for the Generals when it was kind of like waning in popularity. They had like Wilt Chamberlain. There was one time where they said all they wanted was a shot to try to beat him. Let's play for real. Yeah. And so at halftime one game, they're like, all right, you know what? If you can take him tonight take him and he's like we choked so bad we got beat by 40 so yeah, yeah. but later you get a chance to do the late show with david letterman yeah when you walk through that curtain or come out on stage to take that yeah what does that mean to your career at that moment well i mean that was amazing and it was like one of those things where i didn't think it was going to happen that was actually the first show that i wanted to do because i thought i was like made for that show wasn't to be and then I ended up doing the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson four yeah. times and so I really honed I love doing those five minute sets and I really work on them and I think for me they're more manageable I know people are doing hour specials and that's just such a monstrosity to me that <laughs> I, I like to be a wordsmith and five minutes is like perfect for me and every time I did it I felt like I got better. There was one time I filled in that day. Like, I think Jenny McCarthy fell down the stairs. So they're like, hey, do you have a set ready? And I'm like, yep, I got one. (laughs) That was a lesson. Always be ready. By the time I did Letterman, it was the producers that were booking it. This is a good lesson for you. So I had this set that I was working on for Conan because I was like, I think I'm perfect for Conan. I had just done a show at Largo with Andy Richter. And he's like, how come you don't do our show? And I was like, well, I did Craig Ferguson. I don't know if you guys are competing or what's going on. And he's like, no, 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 you should do it. And then so I sent their booker this set that I worked really hard on. And he was just like, pass, pass, pass. And literally, like, I got that email 10 o'clock at night. And I was, like, devastated for a few minutes. And then my friend had just sent me the Letterman producer's email. I was like, you know what? I worked so hard on this. Why don't I send it to them? And then it's L.A. time. So... I'm up late, it's like one or two in the morning, get up to go to the bathroom like four, I see that I got an email back from Letterman already, hey, we love this set, there's one joke maybe, do you have a replacement joke? So 4 a.m. in my underwear, I'm editing this one joke in, send it to him, before I go to bed, like five o'clock in the morning, they're already booking me, saying yes to everything, and then... you can't fall asleep after that, no, right? Because you no. like, do you tell anybody? Like, is it really happening? So that's like a good lesson of failures lead to other right. things. Right, a giant yeah. shot of adrenaline. Well, listen, Paul, thank you for, for taking a minute. I know that you've got to be back on stage yeah. to introduce the next person. Well, I'm a big fan of you too, so uh, thanks for doing this podcast. I listened to a bunch of them during the pandemic, and it <laughs> got me through, especially the one with Jerry and, and Brian Regan. Those were great. So. Oh, good, good. If you haven't heard the Nate Bargatze one, that's an interesting okay, one too. But I want them to know they can find out more about you at paulhasawebsite.com. And keep an eye out for the Ice Cream versus Everything album. It will be available everywhere by the time this airs. Oh, thanks so All much, right, Pat. Man. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Paul. Cheers. Hi, uh, I'm British, but I live in America now. <laughs> All right. 
Now, here's the thing about living in America. Every time I think I understand the culture here, I'll make a rookie error. And the biggest one I made recently by a mile was I joined some British friends for a bachelor party in Las Vegas for five days. <laughs> My new favorite thing by a mile is telling a bunch of Americans I went to Vegas for five days. Because <laughs> you guys act like I just said I went to fight in Iraq for 12 years. <laughs> as soon as I say it, I can hear someone go, dude, too long. <laughs> five days, way too long, buddy. You want to die, that is how you die. <laughs> and then what you guys love to do is show off to me about how tiny a time frame you go to Vegas for. <laughs> Dude, when I go, two days max. One night, two days, that is it. <laughs> Sometimes I walk into a casino, roll one dice, leave immediately, that's it. <laughs> Strip club, one nipple, thank you, Vegas. <laughs> I drive to Vegas, I get past the Vegas sign, I immediately turn around, because that is enough Vegas. That is the comedy of Chris Martin here at the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival in Jamestown. Our invitation, all courtesy of the National Comedy Center. And I loved watching you at the big theater at the Reg. Oh, yeah. And now here you are playing the Tropicana Club. How was this audience tonight, this more intimate audience? They were both fun in their own ways. Sometimes this happens. I don't know why. <laughs> Sometimes one half of the room laughs louder than the other half because there were some younger people on the side laughing more. So they said, I still have energy. It feels too late. Some of the people in there, I'm like, this is the latest you guys have been up <laughs> in maybe five years. Right. And so I was joking with them about how it's like the evolution of man and someone's going to die or something on the, on the other end. It seemed to like light them up. Back when I started, I'd be like, oh my God, some of them aren't laughing. I kind of find it funnier. Well, you learn in comedy to ride the wave. You've got to see what's going on and you stir it up. Because sometimes you go and do your best stuff, like at the theater. But when it's like that, it's fun to do it because it makes you feel like it's a unique experience for you. And then I think the audience feel that as well. Yeah. And, and we're in a moment just so the audience, if they hear murmurs and rumbles in the background, we're right next to the green room. Yeah, shut up, guys. And, shut uh, up. <laughs> yeah. That's also a different party. So we're in the middle of john with each other in the green room yes. and then you kind of get jettisoned out where you take the stage and you get to have your own playtime, and then you come back and in this case you got another show yet to do tonight right no it's weird to do another one isn't it as well because i did like totally different material at two and then i think i'll try and do it's fun actually it's a fun challenge to try and do something fully different will any person go to all three shows no i i wouldn't think anybody at this show would we'll be at stage. the next show okay yeah, great yeah. And that's something we always have to consider. I remember very odd days when the Funny Bone would do three shows on a Saturday. And by the time you were doing a midnight show, you were asking yourself, did I do that or I not? I know, I know. And, like, and you look at the audience in the middle of the joke and you go, I said this already. Oh, yeah, I tonight, know. I've, I don't think I've ever... Maybe I've done that once in London once. I think I, I did like three shows in a night and I'd been to a funeral that day. And so my brain was a bit all over the place. I should have, I should have never... Here's a comedy tip to any new people. Don't do several shows the day you've been to a funeral isn't it? everyone always thinks that like comedians are like oh we're all sad and depressed it's part of it's like don't see your, your mate's dad get buried oh. and then go do comedy <laughs> obviously because it's like sad anyway but also it does mess up you yeah. well let me ask you something brain. because you mentioned it what's the difference between one london audience and american audience i feel like there's a big difference in there is a difference how the audience behaves i think in the uk way more heckling christmas shows in the uk they're generally a bag of shit. As in, like, you used to get paid 
time and a half for doing the clubs because it's the crowd are just because there's loads of office parties and like drunk office parties don't make any sense there's no way that 50 weird <laughs> disparate people in the office are all gonna have the same sense of humor so you're basically just putting out fires and there's loads of stag and hen and all this stuff or bachelor parties bachelorettes but then here generally you still get some slightly more rowdy crowds i think americans naturally want to have a good time and laugh more british people think they're the funniest always so british people like i've joked like when i'm I'm on the road a bit now. Like, not that many British people come to watch me. British people just go, that guy thinks he's better than me, <laughs> so I don't want to go watch him. Right. They come and they sit to judge you. Yeah, they do, or they just don't turn up. And so that's the difference. But what I will say about the UK is when you go on at the start, they're less giving. They basically, like, prove you're funny. But when you prove you're funny, or if you deal with a heckle, then they're amazing. It's almost like you've got to suffer and then you can really get reap the rewards. Right, right. It's kind of like being the new guy in prison, right? <laughs> you got you got to beat up the around. biggest guy, and then they go, "All right, he's yeah. okay." That's why I never wear shoelaces on stage in case <laughs> I right. hang myself. Mid set. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Now you've done some writing. You were writer on Late Late Show. Yes. All right. What was that experience like? It was really fun. It, I came in at the end of the show, so it was the last six months. So it was. I haven't done any other late night writing. I think sometimes those rooms are quite competitive, but what's nice about Late Late Show is everyone was very giving. Like, no one was like, that's my joke, that's my thing. It was like, we're trying to make the best product. And like, Corden was very good at being the guy to be like open to stuff and wanted it to be as good as possible. He wasn't dictatorial. He was just like, I want it to be a good, and especially because it was the end, he wanted to finish with a bang. And so it was hard in one way because there was a lot of people who've been on there for years and understood what was, they were trying to tie up. But everyone was super nice and generous. But it's fast moving. Day one, you're like, you're in a moving machine. And you're like, <laughs> right. oh, I just got to write jokes for two hours. And then and you kind of, the other writers were all so nice that people kind of help you your way through it. So yeah. it was a great experience. He has a really big personality. He throws a good party. Yeah. And he seems to be a pretty generous yeah. guy. But it is a sausage machine. It is, you put that stuff in it and it's, you got to have more and more and more. You're, you're constantly feeding material to yes. television. And it's eating it up. There's no, hey, we could... Recycle this. Like if you're on the road on tour, you can repeat a joke. Yeah, you have or to come idea. up. It's new every time. Yeah. From my stand-up, I like I have punchlines, but I generally prefer stories of punchlines. So I I wasn't used to topical monologue jokes, so to speak. I'm always excited to do something different. So it's a great skill to learn the monologue joke writing technique mm. before AI steals all those jobs, probably. <laughs> and then, but also great to like come up with sketch ideas. You could literally go like, I've got this idea, and then you email it, or you'd pitch it to the head writers, and then. Then you get to work on it and then see what happens. So my understanding is you have a podcast called Getting My Dad to Say I Love You. Uh, that's one of my podcasts, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's interesting about it is that's something the AI can't take away you from you. You can't take away that, yeah. Because when it's personal, when you're writing yes. from a truth or a heart-driven thing, AI can only take it once you put it out there. A hundred percent, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually probably a good way of trying to think is like, whenever I come up with stuff, is like, sometimes I think of an observation and I'll be like, maybe that's been done before. But then it's like, almost everything's been done, right? People yeah. have talked about that, but it's like, only you, the thing it's taken me a long time to learn is only I am me and my life is my life. So if I tell stories about my dad, then that's going to be very personal. There might be some observations that end up, people have similar, but again, I'm only going to, I'm going to be the only one to say it the way I'm going to say it. So it's just in, when I started, I was like, I have to come up with the most original topic of all time. But now it's like, I just need to be as personal and honest as possible. And that kind of takes care of the originality, if that makes sense. And we talk about in writing, sometimes the very specific becomes general. Yes. In that what encounters, what emotions you're talking about or what your story is, is relatable 
the more intimate it is. Yes. Because I go, oh, that's funny. I had an experience like that. So yeah. I can go on a ride. If you try to broad brush it and make it general to include everybody, I know. people go, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, someone like Kyle Kinane, I watched him once a few years ago, and he was just telling a story, and I was like, that hasn't happened to me, but I could imagine it happening to me. And that's more satisfying, I think, for an audience than going, you know, when we all pick up dog shit the same way or whatever. <laughs> it's a good bit. Write it down. Yeah. It's going in the set, which it can be effective. But I do think the thing that stays with you more is when someone speaks them about themselves and you can put yourself in it. Or, yeah. or the imagery of a story, I think, is another important thing. Putting pictures in heads is a big thing right. for me. We also have a built-in truth detector. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so if somebody puts a, some broad, funny comedy name in it, you go, that's not a real person. But if they say, my friend Tom Deesner had the biggest head in school, you go, that sounds right. Yeah. Somehow there's import. There's so much more. You kind of remember what people were wearing, what they were doing. I know, that's funny. But it does feel like if you honor the stuff that was funny to you at the time, it comes through in the story. There's just no way around that. Yeah, that's funny. I, I was not, yeah, you made me realize that I do. Some of the stuff I've been doing and working on, I've been adding in full names into it because it just, because I'm trying to remember an old story as well. So then yeah. it's like, the more specific you are, weirdly, the more relatable it can be. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting paradox, isn't it? You also worked on the I Think You Should Leave series. Oh, yeah, I was just in one. I was just in an episode. I was but, just in but a very short. But how much fun was it to oh, be in so that fun. episode? I was in it very short, for a very short period. But I will say, out of everything I've ever done in my career, I'm in it for the shortest time. I've never had more of my friends be like, oh my God, you're in that? I love that show. Yeah, yeah. It's like a very specific audience, that show. But it's all people that I like, like that show. Yeah. Tim Robinson was my... I played his son and I had like one. Well, line. he's so quirky he's so and he's so Tim Robinson. Like you can't almost say anything else about the way he delivers that stuff. I've been reading online. He started like uh, loads of guys have just started as naturally they do when someone's very impressive and good. Lots of guys have started kind of doing his comedy and his just shouty, quirky. Right. It feels really authentic in his sort of weirdly surreal way. He's so good. Hey, listen, if you were going to, Give any kind of hot tip to a young comic, somebody, whether it's a writing tip or a performance tip, what would you share with somebody? Don't try to be like, I need to separate myself and be different. I need to be the like sh angry guy or the upbeat guy or whatever. Because sometimes TV, I think, makes people think in those boxes, especially panel shows in the UK. But I would say just try and be the most you version of yourself on stage, unless you're doing some crazy character. But even that, find your own honest truth in that. Sounds a bit like hippie, but I do think like trying to be your most comfortable self on stage because only you are you. Even if you think I'm just like some generic guy, it's like you're not. You may be on the surface, but there's something deeper in you that no one else has. Right. And I think sometimes that vulnerability is hard for people to connect to because they want to be approved of. Yes, 100%. That's the other well, link to that is don't try to please everyone with what you're doing. Just just be okay with like not everyone liking it because so many people I came up with, I'd see them do shows and like half the crowd didn't like them or, but the people that liked them loved them because they were just doing their thing. So just do your thing and then the rest will take care of itself. That is Chris Martin and you can go to chrismartincomedy.com to find out more. I know Chris Rock in his mind, he told the joke, he's like, oh good, okay, Will Smith's laughing, Will's laughing, I feel good, cause Will Smith is laughing, Denzel Washington's laughing, the Peter Nyong'o is laughing, uh-oh, Jada Pinkett Smith, she ain't laughing right now, <laughs> damn, new Will Smith ain't laughing no more, damn, why is Will Smith the Fresh Prince now standing up walking towards me, Will Smith is now 30.
off. You can't get mad. You already laughed at the joke. That's like going to the strip club, getting three, four lap dances, and afterwards saying, gotta get $20 back. It's too late. You can't retract the laugh. Uh-oh, the first prince now 15 feet away. Get a little bit closer. His fist is curled up. It looked like he would have hit me in the face. You can't punch me in the face. You played Muhammad Ali. I played Pookie the crackhead from New Jackson. That ain't no even fight. That can't work out. Damn, the fresh prince now five feet away. Get a little bit closer. His hands open. Okay, maybe he's gonna give me a high five. Gonna say, good job on that joke. Put my damn, his hand just passed my head. And give me, damn, the fresh prince just slapped me in the face. Say it ain't so. I ain't say nothing out of line. I ain't say nothing wrong. I said your wife look like Demi Moore. I didn't say your wife look like Flavor Flav. Yo, y'all been cool, man. I'm kidding. That comedy you're hearing is from Dean Edwards, very talented performer, writer, SNL vet, and he joins us now. He had three shows tonight, so we're catching him before the last show. All right. So uh, and literally coming off stage, how did you enjoy that? Oh, they were good, man. It's good. It's, it's interesting because coming from doing the theater to you know the club, it's a different energy. Still great energy, but a difference in the energy because I've been traveling. I flew from Vegas to New York and then up to Buffalo, so I'm frazzled. Yeah. So the the crowd's energy was important. To yeah. Me. Well, yeah. isn't that funny? Because most people don't know how a comic is uh, wired for certain things. So yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. give the audience context. You were just at a 1300 seat theater earlier with just a big full house. Maybe this is a hundred people over here in the Tropicana club. Yeah, yeah. And some of those people may have come from that other place. Right, 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 right. So right. you're making a quick decision about my, uh, content. Yeah. So I, I changed my set just to be safe. I said, you know what? Let me, I think I did 15, 16 minutes yeah. over at the theater. So I said, okay, I'm a headline. I have more than enough material yeah, yeah. To, to pick and choose. But also from. just what is our day like, right? So yeah. how did the travel happen? Did you get the nap? Did you get the shower? Did I got the shower, not the nap. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have been a person that's been able to use your sense of humor and your voice mm -hmm. to make a living other ways as yeah, well, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. in video games and commercials. If you had a piece of advice for young comics or people exploiting their talent in a fuller way, mm -hmm. give mm -hmm. them a sense of how you came into that part of your career. SNL opened a lot of doors and made the transition into also doing voiceover work that much easier where I had done some voiceover work for MTV or a couple of commercials having the SNL brand and you know behind me it it, it opens doors till still to this day for and I'm not big on advice anyone who knows me knows I'm not big on advice because what works for one person might not work right. for another but if you have a skill set you know maximize and use it to the fullest if, if you are someone that utilizes their voice and has a bunch of characters because people also like well, you know, I have impressions, but if you're doing a commercial for, for Ford, you're not necessarily doing impression. You're understanding the, the tonal quality of your voice and how to modulate that so that if you're doing a commercial for State Farm, where it's, where it's higher energy versus Ford. So for me, because I do impressions of everybody from Denzel Washington to, to, to Tracy Morgan, Kevin Hart, you know, I always think of the tonal quality of people's voices when I'm doing voiceover work. 
and that's what's going to book you the gig. Yeah, yeah. Understanding your instrument, if you have to take a voiceover class, or, or there's a really great master class by, I think her name is Yurtley Smith. She does Bart Simpson, right? Right. She has a lot of great notes, and I'm, I'm always studying, whether it's acting or writing or VO. I spent, uh, what, a little less than $200 because I wanted to take a writing course with Shonda Rhimes. Sure. But it, it opened up the world of opportunities for cooking or you want to play piano. So I think as, as a performer, you, you should always search for more enlightenment, how to get better. Yeah, I was really impressed by that masterclass series yeah. because you can't sit at a coffee shop with any of those people, right. David Mamet writing a play right. or, right. or Ron right. Howard. Sorkin, Ron Howard. Yeah. Any of those folks. So you Sam pay Jackson, attention. Yeah. Yeah. You can teach yourself. The internets have opened up something that, as a kid, you would have spent a lifetime. Access. You have yeah, access now. access for yeah. everybody. Yeah, and I think that's really, really important. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Good, good point. Do you have some big personal project? Are you writing a screenplay or doing something we, for yourself? We actually, we, we're working on something with a production company, but because of the writer's strike, we formed a collective union to strike against the producers. And so until this strike ends and, and we get some sort of settlement of the equity that's being earned specifically in streaming, nothing's being sold. So the beauty of being a stand-up is even if I can't act in anything right now, I still can earn a great living. When the pandemic, I imagine that you were still capable of doing voiceover work from a home studio. I could, but the voiceover world really has changed, whereas previously there were a higher percentage of gigs that were union than were not. Now it's almost flipped where there are more non-union gigs than union gigs. And so you have more people because more people have the, the accessibility the to right. buy your own home studio and submit for the projects. Obviously, the larger projects are still vetted through the agencies, yeah. but there are fewer jobs. I had a few voiceover gigs during the pandemic, and then after the pandemic, I actually just did a uh, video game. Uh, I do a lot of donkey when, when Eddie Murphy's not available, um, and so we just I just had, uh, had a lot of donkeys. Another, yeah. yeah, I had a gig that I had to record right before the strike started, so fortunately. Good. All right, well, I wish you great luck. If they want to hear more or find you, it's best to go to at I am Dean Edwards yeah, on social, social media. media. And, yeah. and you can check out my specials on Netflix right now. Tiffany Haddish presents They Ready Season 2, Episode 6. We actually shot that during the pandemic. What a great endorsement to have Tiffany Haddish. Oh, yeah. Tiffany, that's my girl right there. Yeah. She, she awesome, man. Yeah. Well, I know you got another set tonight, which we're excited to see where you go with that. But thanks for spending a few minutes oh, with this. Oh, thanks for having me. Y'all. Yeah, you're the best, it. man. Thanks, Cheers. Bro. Thank you. This is a real thing. I got two names. Anton, that's my Hebrew name. That's the name that I go by. And then Evan. Evan is on all of my legal documents. And the reason why is because my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And they're afraid that the Holocaust was to happen again. They wanted to give me like a secular name. I feel like duck under. Because Anton Shmuel Levine, very Jewish. <laughs> but Evan Shmuel Levine. <laughs> 
you were just listening to Eitan Levine, and he has come off stage here from the Tropicana Club, and he's joining us in the podcast studio. How was the crowd tonight? It was great. That room is a lot of fun. I will say huge diversity in ages. I feel like there were a lot of <laughs> young, young people, and then a lot of uh, co-op board presidents out there. That's kind of what I experienced. That's the politest way I've ever heard that said. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of comedy towns are like, like when I was in Burlington, Vermont, I was performing for the, the college out there, and I feel like that town also was just like college kids and then old swingers, and Bernie Sanders is out. Yeah. yeah, silver alert, silver alert. Yeah. But here's what's interesting about this town, Jamestown. Because it's anchored on Lucille Ball, and that's what the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival is about, they get a lot of comedy here. Yeah. Between the festivals and the fans that come from the television era and the young folks that are watching the up-and-coming, this evening's lineup, these are people on the rise. Oh, yeah. Well, this town is interesting. I didn't know this town existed. I will say, it is interesting that it is an entire town that's themed around Lucille Ball, which is, I don't know if you've ever gone into like a Jewish house and the house becomes a shrine for the firstborn son. That is what this entire town feels like. If you walk into the Levine house, it's just pictures of me in different graduation settings and stuff. What's interesting is that they wanted to make a museum to Lucy herself, and she mandated that it be a museum to all comedy, thinking people would eventually forget her, but maybe if the genre was celebrated, we'd be celebrating a lot more. What so, you guys got to do is you got to have another generational comedic talent come out of Jamestown. Yes, That's another thing that yes. if I were you guys, I'd start focusing on. Well, I don't live here myself, but I know what you're saying. They need to be breeding comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys yeah. got to come up here. You guys got to offer stipends for comics and stuff to come up here and hook up with each other. So you use humor, though, in other parts of the world. You're, you're a writer. You've contributed to the New York Times and Reader's Digest. Were those articles or comedy columns or? Yeah, Reader's Digest, I was directing all of their videos that went up on all of their uh, websites. Reader's Digest, their entire demographic are people that are just Googling like, like dog lists for my son. We were there to add like video content. So if there's a bunch of comics riffing on whatever the article is about. New York Times was, unfortunately, my grandmother died of COVID in 2020 in the first wave. Uh, and I was stuck in the city. And as much as it was bad, there was like a lot of like comedic things that had happened during the process. So the article I wrote was dark comedy article about her like we got put on hold you know when we were saying goodbye to her over the phone they put us on hold in the middle of it so it was just like emotional like thing and then also i'm like crying to the hospitals on hold music for like (laughs) 10 minutes and i'm like sobbing you know the funny thing that happened during it was that the funeral itself we get to the funeral and the cemetery there's like a backlog of like nine bodies because it was like at the height where they were just they couldn't handle the influx of bodies that came in so we're standing out looking at these like nine hearses and my mom is standing next to me and she's like I can't believe Bubby died I can't believe Bubby died and I was like really crying and then she goes I can't believe she died and she's in one of these hearses and at that point my dad who's like emotionally oblivious to everything walks across the cemetery parking lot and like looks into each hearse oh, no. <laughs> and then just turns around after each one. It was like, she's not in this one. Oh like, my he God. He does it seven times. He gets to the last one. She's like, she's in this one. So the article was a lot about like the yeah. weird stuff that kept on happening. I did this. read the yeah. article because your publicist sent it ahead to, to us. Oh, and I thought it was well-written and it was a combination of how important humor can be in a crisis and tender at the same time. Yeah, I mean, my family, uh, Holocaust survivor family, it's a wildly funny family to come from, but, you know, like all Jews that kind of came up through these houses where there was like such dark stuff that had happened to us, you know, comedy was a big element growing up. 
Yeah. Now, you were featured on late night television in a number of places, right? Oh, yeah. For the Ted Cruz thing. Yeah. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. What does it mean for a comic to do late night television in any way? It was baffling watching the video get played. Basically, what happened was that last year I I went to go watch the Yankees get eliminated by the Astros. I'm a Met fan, and I live about 18 minutes from Yankee Stadium, and I knew the Astros were about to sweep the Yankees. So I went there, and then as I was leaving, I run into Ted Cruz, and I start yelling at Ted Cruz on my phone, and I'm like yelling something like, like, you fat, you know, like, you like ugly, whatever. And then at one point I go, remember when Trump called your wife ugly? And minute and a half video ends up going like mega viral. Right. I think it's at like 4.5 million, 4.3 million. And it was on Kimmel, Colbert, right. Kimmel, Daily Show. Watching it up there was like baffling. It was a moment like none other. Yeah. You turned the footage out to the world. I have a viral TikTok. Okay. It's like the thing. I, I do this interview segment called Jewish or anti-Semitic where I ask people <laughs> if stuff is Jewish or if it's anti-Semitic and it blew up and now I'm big with Jewish college kids. Do you want to play a little bit? I could, do I want to play? Yeah. I'll try it. Why not? All right, here we go. Uh, Christianity, Jewish or anti-Semitic? Oh, I would say Jewish. Anti-Semitic. Oh, okay. very anti-Semitic. Uh, the Pope. He sounds anti-Semitic. He's Jewish. Oh. An old guy that wears a yarmulke and doesn't pay taxes. That is a Jewish <laughs> man. <laughs> now somehow I feel like I'm being set up. Uh, here we go. Florida. Oh, Florida's Jewish. So Florida is anti-Semitic. It's Jewish on the outside, okay. but the inside is very anti-Semitic, like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She's not Jewish. It's people doing Jew voice out there. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I can see how this works. Exactly. That yeah. you get to decide. Yes. Right. Oh, okay. that's the thing is that I'm right. <laughs> right. People in the comments will try to be like, you know, the, I wouldn't consider like Supa. And I'm like, I do. You it know? only took me three questions to figure out I was not going to win ever. <laughs> right. Well, let me ask you something. If a young comic was trying to find their voice now, like coming into this game or even with TikTok, since you have that, what's your advice for them to pay attention to how they brand themselves? With TikTok specifically, I tried to make it so that I was split from my TikTok because I think TikTok forces comedy and editing in the way that is good for the TikTok algorithm. So like a lot of times I see stand-up videos that are on TikTok that are not funny, but are on TikTok just to hit the algorithm correctly. When I do the man on the street stuff, I have to hit the algorithm correctly. There's a certain way to edit the stuff. So I would say a big thing is to make sure that the live performance, the stuff that actually means more, when I do stand-up, I would rather do better sets than have, you know, TikTok videos go viral because it just feels better. So I would say handle your live stuff. Make sure that you're, like, competent and live. And then the TikTok stuff also, be proficient in that. Become a better video editor. Learn how tags and stuff like that happen. But you want to definitely make sure that the live stuff that actually means a lot is still going and still a focus. Yeah. That is a promotional machine, mm-hmm. and you have to feed it. You have to figure it out. I think that it is obligatory at this point to make sure that you are at least competent in knowing how this stuff works. Whether you figure it out or not past that, that's another thing, but like at least be competent. Know in the it. language. Yeah. So if they want to find out more about you, probably best to go to your Instagram Aton the goalie. Yes, yes. I know you have a second set tonight, so I'm not going to hold you up too much here. Thank you for investing a little time sharing some Jewish and anti-Semitic trivia <laughs> combination <laughs> and sharing the TikTok stuff with us. This is Aton. You can find out more about him by going to atonlevine.com. Awesome. Thank All right. you. Thanks, pal. I just had a bad train ride. My nose started to bleed on the train. That's the worst. <laughs>
I don't have any Kleenex, and it was like a fourth grade nosebleed, like it wouldn't stop. And I know you're supposed to go like this, but I didn't want people to know that my nose was bleeding on the train. I'm in my 30s, that's embarrassing. So what I did, and this is a trick I want to share with you, I, I really doubled down on it. I went, have my face like this. And no one knew my nose was bleeding the entire time, and I made six bucks. It's not so bad, it's a good day. I have two brothers. One's younger, one's older, and we like to physically fight all of the time. Like, last time that we were together, we fought at my grandpa's assisted living complex. <laughs> Let's just say, we did pretty good, we're still undefeated. That is the comedy of Marcus Monroe that the New York Times critics say is one of the most entertaining performers to watch in New York City. Yeah, it cost a lot of money to, <laughs> for them to say that, but it was worth it. And it's paying off here in Jamestown. Oh, yeah. You've just come off stage. How was that audience? So fun. The audiences here are incredible. I never thought Jamestown would have some of the hottest audiences in comedy, but this festival is just the right vibe. They do it right here. Good host. We all know each other or work together at some other place. It's like a family reunion, and you have to leave for 10 minutes and go have the best <laughs> part, and you come back to the family. It's a great time. Earlier tonight, you were on stage as part of the Comedy Showcase at the Reg Lanay, which is a big performing arts center, 12, 1300 Beautiful seats. theater. Fantastic, oh. and you did a great set. Thank you so much. I followed you, which was no easy task, but it was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I know something about you now that a listener may not know. Okay. That you began in the world of juggling. Yeah. But you used your humor and your juggling to rise to a point, though, that you are new doing just stand-up. Right. I overheard you in the green room talking about, sure. hey, you know, you've got to shed that. The stuff where it's like you got a killer variety act. Sure. And now you're riding on a brand and personality of just your voice. So, first of all, amazingly liberating. Yeah, it is. It's fun. It's fun. And I love juggling and I love that whole life I had of being a variety artist and a circus artist and meeting that whole community is very fun. And I'm, I spent like over 20 years doing that. But I found myself in every show, kind of doing less and less juggling. And I would put more and more comedy into the show. And at one point, I just sat down and I was like, what am I doing? Right now, at least, I don't want to be a prop guy. I don't want to be juggling. I just want to see if I can get away with jokes, just my words. And it was a challenge. You know, I had to tell my agents, hey, you know, I'm doing comedy now, so book me as a stand-up, not as a juggler. And they're like, what? Yeah, I, I came out as a comic, and they've been so supportive. It's been great. Although, you know, I had a lot of experience performing on stages since I was very, very little. I was acting in theaters when I was like nine years old in like professional theater touring shows, like repertory productions. When you sit down to write now, you're not going into a room where you're practicing and putting hours rehearsing, which is different. Do you put the same amount of discipline into joke writing? So here's the thing. When I transition to comedian, there's so many other things that fall under that umbrella because joke writing is the main part of it. And if you lose sight of that, you're, you're done. But there's like you have to make content for social media now. You know, you're doing a podcast. You have to get guests. You have to edit that podcast. You have to keep everyone engaged with photos. So I'm trying to juggle all of those things now. And it's fun, but yeah, there's a lot more that goes into it. If I was just doing juggling, I could do that show in my sleep. I never really practiced, honestly, for like the last 10 years. I never really seriously practiced. I didn't learn anything new. I just kind of practiced just to maintain. But comedy, it's like you have to be on it all the time. You can't really take breaks. If you do, you get rusty. There's also a lot of work that people aren't aware of. The show is usually the funnest part. Yeah. That's the surfing the wave where you get you hit in there, you get in the pipeline. But getting to the gigs 
can be harrowing. Yes. Right? The flight, yeah. the rental car. Oh, my the, God. Yeah. I mean, we always say, us performers, they just pay us to travel because the show's the easy part. But I will say, now that I'm doing stand-up, the show is so much easier and the travel's so much easier because when I was juggling, I remember there was a time I checked six bags. I had a bull spinning rig. I was speed painting. I had a seven-foot-tall unicycle. I had all my juggling props. I had my clothes, my costumes. It was just ridiculous. Right. <laughs> Now I can carry on, and it's like, oh, my God, why didn't I do this 15 years ago? Yeah, it's like traveling as a streaker. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so fun. Nothing to do. And it's fun to know that I can just go on stage now just with a microphone. Don't need to sound check, really. Don't need to have a bunch of props with me. It, it's scary, though, because when I was juggling, if I was doing a little stand-up bit and it wasn't going great, I'm like, here's some knife juggling. Let me <laughs> toss some right. stuff on fire. There was a lot of insurance policy. Yes, absolutely. And also, you could do a thing for the audience visually where if they didn't laugh, it didn't mean they weren't engaged right. or entertained. Yeah, there was no laughs per minute. It was just like, let me just be entertaining, and, and whatever that meant. Now, you were a recipient of the Andy Kaufman Award. Yes. And what a name, really, to be and presented that. Oh, yeah. Among some other great people, you were telling me earlier some of the folks that had Reggie been. Watts, Kristen Schaal, Nick Vatterot, Harrison Greenbaum, Harry Trajanian, Drew Johnson. It's a great group of people. And Michael Kaufman, Andy's brother, I think he was like the mastermind behind this with a few friends of his. And uh, Carol Kaufman, his sister. And the whole Kaufman family has just been so welcoming. And, you know, they treat me like one of their own. You know, they send me Christmas cards. They're just a, a loving family. I was a huge Andy Kaufman fan. Even before Man on the Moon came out, I was like, this man was so interesting because I loved wrestling growing up and I loved performing and magic. And he was kind of doing like kids parties, like stuff like child entertainment in a way. And I was kind of doing right. something similar at the time when I found out about him. So it was kind of interesting to be like, oh, I can just be weird. Well, you were awarded for that. Yes. And so I guess it paid off. So. You got in the right business. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very thankful. Yeah, Andy Coffin is an awesome. Like, every, anytime I Google him on like YouTube, I, I see a video I'd never seen before. It's just it's so remarkable how ahead of his time he was. Did you watch the documentary that was Jim Carrey oh, Andy yeah. Coffin, about him preparing to do Man on the yeah, Moon? Yeah, Andy and maybe? Jim, I think it was called. Yeah, yeah I, I wow. That. that was intense, wasn't it? I had no idea about that. There was a whole backstage drama going on while they were filming that movie. Incredible. Which, in a strange way, there was always drama around Andy. Yes. Comedy and drama. Yeah. Because he was a performance artist. Sure. And a performance artist, not just on stage, but he liked getting everyone's goat in any which way he could do it. Yeah. Because I think it was more like the human condition, studying how people are going to respond to him yeah. if he played the other character, his yeah. alter ego. Tony Clifton. That's kind of anti-comedy to, to see how far you can push people. Now, who do you think today is like an Andy Kaufman? There was a time that somebody like Andy Dick or some of these yeah. people, my opinion, he, he kind of went off the rails, right? Sure. So it wasn't like he had a controlled sense of where he yeah. was going. But I don't know. Do you have somebody that you're thinking? I see Andy Kaufman as qualities in a lot of people. Rory Scovel, I think, is a good example. He's fearless on stage, and that's a quality that Andy had and, and owned. Rory Scovel can, is one of these comics who can just improvise a whole hour and a half, and it's killer. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of think about it from time to time, too. Like, oh, that's very Kaufman-esque of certain people. Like Reggie Watts, I mean, he won the Andy Kaufman Award, but he's also like very talented musician, comedian. Yeah, but he's focused. I think he has a, a unique talent of creating the music as he goes, bringing in the improvisation. It doesn't seem like chaos. Sure. And Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, rest in peace, had a lot of those qualities too as Pee Wee, don't you think? I mean, yeah. it's chaotic, his little fun house. Yeah, yeah. kind of like loved it. Now, if you were advising a variety performer or somebody who wanted to 
move to their comedy voice because I know setting it all down and moving forward is transitional. It's yeah. a big change. Yeah. So do you have a piece of advice about that? Absolutely. Don't be afraid to fail. I mean, that's number one no, because you're going to. Just don't be afraid of it. Don't let that hinder you or stop you. But also just take your time with it. Don't just gradually be like, all right, now I'm going to stand up. Da, 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 da. Write your jokes. Have an out in case you want to, if you do magic, to have an out, have a trick backed up. Take it slow. It was a slow transition. And a lot of people now, which is so funny, like I'm at the Comedy Cellar, which is the best comedy club in the world. And a lot of people there don't even know I, I used to juggle. They're just like, oh, he's just a stand-up, which is really funny because sometimes I'm on stage, I don't even mention it. Yeah. And over time, that's exactly what happens because right. I did start out as a guy that did sleight of hand and magic. And by the time I got on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, I, I just said, made it my goal yeah. not to bring the tricks on. Not because I didn't like them or want it, but I thought the only way to do it is to go all in to see if I could survive that way. Yeah, and and I'm not saying I'm not ever going to bring it back. I just think right now it's just like the time for me to try something new. Yeah. yeah. If you want to find out more about Marcus, you can go to his Instagram or any of his social stuff, which is Marcus J. Monroe. Great to have you at the festival. I know you still have another set tonight, so I don't want to tie you up. No, I, I, I listen to this podcast all the time, so I'm honored to be on it. Oh, good. Well, good to have you. Thank you. All right, cheers. I was looking for any reason to escape my parents' house, and I took a spin class. I never do things like that. I just wanted to go for the cycling part, but then they were doing all this inspirational yelling in the class. <laughs> I don't know why that's happening with exercise now. Like, I don't need that. I don't like that idea of, like, we're all in this together. It's like, no, we're not, Kelsey. <laughs> we are not in this together. If I showed up at your house, you'd call the police. That's what would happen. And then she sensed me resisting the instructor. She just kept trying to pull me in on the jazz of it all. She goes, look at Rachel over there, bike 36. She's in the corner there thinking I'm a rock star. <laughs> I'm like, I have never had that thought in my life. That voice you're hearing right now is the voice of Rachel Feinstein, and she's coming off stage and joining us in the green room. Are you having a good time? I am. I got to I got to go on the same show as you, and uh, we had a lovely time in the green room. Everyone's being nice to me, and I giving me a lot of snacks. I'm doing a lot of feeding. I loved watching that first set. I was up in the booth, hanging out over the top there, watching you just work that crowd. Thank you so much. They were a really good crowd. Everybody was killing. You dove into your husband and the fireman material. You were saying backstage that you now have a fireman fan base. A lot of firefighters and their wives or husbands are coming to all my shows now. It's like half firefighter families, which is really funny because I just like say unspeakable things about my husband. But firefighters like a good trashing. They're like comedians. They can take some trashing. Yeah. yeah, they like to make fun of themselves. And then I feel like other people will get offended about my fireman jokes, but firemen are pretty cool. Well, you're being pretty authentic about what it's like to live. Yeah, because I actually live it, so... Everybody else can fuck right off. Right. I think that's <laughs> the best way to say it. Are you finding other sub bases, subcultures of folks? Like, I make fun of my mom in my comedy, and you do a, a great lampooning of your mom in every possible way. Yeah, I actually talk about how she talks about it on stage, because she's always like, take me out of your talent show or take me out of your comedy skit plays tonight. Yeah, so... But my mom is definitely a wild character. She's one of those overly spiked kind of like soccer mom haircut. Like her hair looks like it was cut by a computer or like a laser printer right. or something. <laughs> right. She wears a hostile amount of turquoise. My mom is a lot. Does she fuel it? Is she feeding the machine in her response to what you're doing? 
No, she. I think she acts like she doesn't want me to say certain things, but then she's gone to shows and when I haven't talked about her, and then when I get off, she'll be like, well, where was I? Right, yeah. right. My mom does the same thing. I'd made a lot of stories that literally I didn't write. Mm-hmm. I just repeat. She can't remember the names of movies, and I just say what she says, and then she said to me afterwards, where are my residuals? That is amazing that your mom knows what residuals yeah. are. And I said, well, you didn't write it. Well, I yeah. said it. I go, I know. But it wasn't comedy when you were saying it to me. <laughs> I converted it. I put it through the comedy converter. My mom, by the way, I wouldn't say she's a heckler, but she's a contributor. Oh, my God. Does she say stuff when you're on stage? Well, just to me. What does she say? This is amazing. Well, I'll be doing a thing, and then she'll just say, we still love you, Pat. And everyone's like, who's that? <laughs> also, why would that be up in the air? Like, obviously, they still love you. <laughs> What's funny is that they always take her side. So if I say, that's my mother, and I go, oh, and I'm like, mom, this isn't an intercom system. Like, you don't get to yell out to me. That's exactly how they are with my husband. People, like, basically carry him around the room and, like, pour Gatorade on him after my shows. Like, me, they're just, like, beat it, bitch. And him, they, like, want to take pictures with him and stuff. He gets so much attention after, way more than I do. Right. Yeah. They want pictures with him. With him, not me. Yeah. That's funny. Well, he seems to be a good sport. He also does those things. All of it is real. He doesn't know you're making fun of him. No, he knows. He loves it because he he's like proud of it. You'd think that that would make him adjust his behavior, but I talk about that on stage too. But no, he's like, no, oh, you saw it. They loved it. Come on. It was great. Because he calls me big guy. And like ever since I've been talking about how that on stage, it just makes him it worse. Yeah. I'm like, that's what you call like a longshoreman or something. He's like, come on. They loved it on stage, though. They was into it. And now he has a song he sings when I walk in the door. I'll be like, hey, she's my big gay. Yeah. <laughs> no, the more I trash it, the more he loves it. And he won't stop. It's exacerbated my problems with him tremendously. But it's such like there's so much material there. Now, have you always been an oversharer? Yes. I was just talking about that on stage. I'll tell anybody anything. Somebody, like, smiles at me at a CVS, and I'll be like, I guess I never felt seen by my father. Like, I knew he loved me, but, yeah, I'll tell anybody anything. This is your voice. This is your brand now. I guess, yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's a great idea, but that's just, I guess that's how I, like, connect to people is oversharing. It also seems like you're very good at processing it while you're saying it. You're great with words. Your descriptions of things are hilarious, I think, because you're sort of painting a portrait of your mom or your (laughs) husband, and there's layers to the paint. Thank you. Oh, that's what I can do. I can't write like a clean joke, punchline, monologue style joke. And I've always sort of felt like a fraud because I can't do that. I'm not a good, crisp, one-liner comic. I've always wanted to have that skill to just take anything that's happening, any topical subject and just write like one quick little turn of a phrase joke but I I can't do that so I just tell stories well yeah but you're a great storyteller and the thing is it seems like it's based on a truth that gets under your skin (laughs) yes everything comes from me being either like actively furious or wildly humiliated I feel like (laughs) right a good combination when making a comedy symphony fun-loving combination Jessica Kirsten, who's one of my best friends and I think is like one of the funniest people I know. And she always like, she's always like, it's not good unless you're really angry. Take me all the way back to childhood for a second. Before you were a professional comedian, before Mm -hmm. this was currency that you could exploit, were you a sarcastic kid? 
Were you a person that spoke out at school? Yes, definitely. I always did impressions of my teachers and everybody. And I remember like really young, my mom picking me up from like a play date. It, it was this British woman and I was just doing her voice back to her. Like she's like, thank you so much for coming. And I was like, well, thank you for having me. And my mom's like, oh, you can't do that. You can't talk back to the person in the same accent. I'm like, why? It's so fun and satisfying. <laughs> she's like, no, you got to do it when you're home, when they behind their back. And I was like, oh, okay, that's fair. Right. I had this teacher... And she had this very clipped little adorable Southern accent. Her name was Miss Delastatious. And I, in my class picture, I'm like trying to make my face look like her. She had these little thin lips and, her, and she would wear lipstick, but they were so cute. And the lip gloss would just kind of shimmer on her little tiny lips. And she had that blonde kind of Hitler youth look I wanted. And so <laughs> I would try to look like her. And I look crazy in my class picture because I'm like trying to look so much look like Miss Delicious. <laughs> but I liked people's affects and their word choices. And I, I would pay attention to that and I uh, was wildly failing in school. So but it sounds like you also had like the ear of a mimic. You could put it back without effort to her as long as you were paying attention to it. Yeah, I didn't have to study doing that. But I was a wild moron in school in every other respect. <laughs> like, I got Ds and Fs. But that was one thing, ability I did have, was to speak back in the same accent or something. I, my, my dad is a blues musician, and he plays all by ear. I wish I had that ability. He plays piano, zydeco accordion, wow. harmonica, and he's incredible, and he could just hear something and play it. My mom's always like, I think you got that from your dad, but with voices. You're not as talented, but you do something. <laughs> I'm like, what was the last she had to add yeah. that for some reason? She's like, so it's like a microcosm of your father's uh, talent with some aggression. So you made it all the way to the finalist of season seven of The Last Comic Standing. And was that a major exposure break for you? Or was that a place where you had already been touring and, and it was just sort of a added value? No, that was a big thing for me. I was opening at that point on the road, but I was still a full-time nanny, and I was bartending a little bit, and I wasn't able to make any kind of living at, at comedy. So I was opening for different headliners, but you can't make a living off feature money, and it was basically just paying for my flight. And then when I did Last Comic Standing, I was able to tour and headline. I was able to quit my day job then. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And comedy nanny is kind of an interesting combination, isn't it? <laughs> I loved kids. I've always loved kids. And I would get fired from every other job just immediately. They were just like, absolutely, you need to leave immediately. You're working on a Netflix special now. Yes, I'm working on a Netflix special now, and it'll be like my new hour, and I'm excited about it. I hope people watch it. Do you have a title yet, or are you still working Probably on it? Probably going to call it Badge Banger, but I can't decide. I don't know. I don't know if they'll let me call it Badge Banger. What about Last Responder? Last Responder's good. I like that. Well, it just sort of plays into the firefighter thing. That's a good idea, Last Responder. I'm a namer of things. You are a good namer. I'm not a good namer at all. You, I know, have a, an additional show tonight, which is crazy. This is, the, this is like the old days of three shows in a I night. I know. It's crazy. I haven't done that in a while. But everybody's been so nice that I've been like snacking a lot in the green room, which is really nice. <laughs> they have really good <laughs> snacks here. I'm worth it. Anybody wants to see more or catch up with you, your social media is at Rachel Feinstein. Or Rachel Feinstein underscore is my Instagram Rachel-Feinstein.com is my website. I think it's at Rachel Feinstein on Twitter. Yeah. Karen Feinstein's daughter. Karen Feinstein's daughter. That's right. If you see a lady in a menopausal cape, that's my mom. <laughs> 
All right, we're signing off from the Lucia Ball Comedy Festival 2023. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us. Thank you. This is really fun. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stare